Would you join me in a word of prayer? Yes, Father, where your people are gathered and your word is open, our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, is there. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask in this time that you would show us your greatness and show us your majesty and power, that each person here would know that they have met with the Redeemer of the universe. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue now in our sermon series on Ruth. We'll be finishing up this great book next week. And if you remember uh, last week, chapter 3 left off with a bit of suspense. Ruth proposes to Boaz, and Boaz agrees, but there is just one problem. Before Boaz can marry Ruth, there is someone closer in line, a kinsman redeemer, who must forego buying the property that Ruth's future is tied to. You see, in the system back then, when there was no male son to take the family property on, the nearest male relative on the husband's side had to marry the widow to bring the property back into the family line. And at the end of chapter 3, of all people, Naomi offers a bit of hope. She says to Ruth, just hold on, Ruth. Boaz will not rest until the matter is settled. She trusts that Boaz will be able to resolve the matter. Now, this is really the first moment in the story where Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi, they're all in a vulnerable situation. We already know well the troubles of Ruth and Naomi. They are childless, they are landless, and they are widows. And on top of that, Ruth is a foreigner. Their livelihood rested with Boaz's kindness, and now their future rests on his success. But at this moment, Boaz also faces an uphill battle because standing in the way of his marriage to Naomi, uh, Ruth, are the cold hard facts of the law. There is a male relative who is closer to Elimelech, and he has a right to purchase that property before Boaz. Now, before we get into chapter four, I just want you to notice that at this moment in the story, Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi all need something greater than what they can do individually or corporately. The outcome does not rest with them. Have you ever been in a situation where you knew that what you desired was right and good, and yet you had no control over the outcome? The sense that your future or the future of someone you cared about is determined by someone or something in which you could do nothing more to influence the decision. Maybe it was your own legal battle. Maybe it was a decision by an employer or a committee to confer upon you an academic degree or admission into a school. Whatever it is, there will be times in your life that your goodwill and your abilities 
will simply not be enough to get you through. And the less power and influence you have, the more you feel that vulnerability. People who are on the margins of society, who in a sense glean on the edges of fields, they feel their weaknesses and limitations daily. And that was Ruth's predicament, wasn't it? And yet there are times that someone like Boaz, a man of character, a man of stature, a man of means, is still vulnerable to the disappointments and losses in life. The law stands against him. And what we have seen so far in this story is that God's redemption can override all the vulnerabilities and all the limitations in any given situation. The story of Ruth, the story of God's people, then and now, is the story that God is threading the plan of redemption through all of history. There is no thread that is too frayed or too worn or too thin. Everything can be brought into the tapestry that he is making. He is the greater redeemer. And what he does is greater than we can expect or imagine. And that's what we will see today in this passage. So we're going to look at this passage today under three headings. First, we will look at the trial of love. Second, the triumph of love. And finally, the testament of love. So first, the trial of love, verses 1 through 8. At the end of chapter 3, Naomi knows something about the character of Boaz that we discover right away in chapter 4. Boaz promises Ruth to marry her, but there's a legal matter that needs to be decided. And he doesn't waste any time. Just hours after making that promise, he starts acting on the plan. And the very moment, this is how the text reads, the very moment that Naomi assures Ruth that Boaz will not settle until this matter is uh, put at rest, Boaz is booking it to the city gate. Promises made, promises kept. Boaz is a man of his word. But is that going to be enough to win this legal battle? Look at how this legal proceeding begins in chapter 4. You know, truthfully, um, our legal system seems a bit easier to manage and navigate through than what Boaz had to deal with. And here's what I mean. First of all, Boaz is responsible for gathering up the witnesses. And these are the ten elders from the town. And he actually also had to track down the other guy to begin the case. Now, just as it so happened that Ruth was gleaning in Boaz's field that started this whole saga in Bethlehem, the nearest redeemer just happened to be strolling along. And the narrator wants us to pay attention to that detail. Behold, or pay attention, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken of came by. Boaz's determination wasn't enough. Like so many events we look back on in our lives, we realize that things happen in God's timing. God's prep work is always on the other side of our efforts. So Boaz invites this nearest relative and these ten elders to sit down. 
and the trial convenes right outside the city gate. So why outside the city gate? Well, the city gate in those days is where news was shared and important matters were settled. Back in Judges, Deborah, a judge, cries out victory at the city gate. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom is calling out from the city gate. The city gate is the center of decision-making in ancient Israel. It's where Wall Street and Main Street are all in one. And just like in our day with many legal proceedings, we need witnesses to certify the outcome. And that's why Boaz invites these 10 elders along. And the fact that Boaz can sort of drum up these 10 elders on the spot suggests something about his stature in the community. Many of you at your jobs know exactly what this is like. If a person of ranking calls a meeting, you drop everything and go right to the meeting because they are that important. They demand that kind of respect. And that appears to be the case for Boaz here. He was that well-respected. Now, our translation has Boaz calling the man, my friend. But many commentators note this phrase is better understood as an impersonal name. Something like, hey, buddy. Or if you're from New Jersey, hey, you. If it's plural, hey, you guys. Some interpreters say that Mr. And so, Mr. So-and-so is a nice way to put this man's name. So we've been waiting to meet this man this entire story, and yet we don't know his name. So why would the author leave his name out? We'll take a look at that in just a moment. So Boaz convenes this case, and before these ten elders and witnesses can get comfortable in, the ch- in their chairs, he gets right into it. He says, Naomi's back from Moab, and that parcel of land that belonged to Elimelech It's up for sale. Are you going to buy it? By the way, I've made this easier for you. We have 10 witnesses. We have have the townspeople here. We can make it official. If you're not going to buy it, go ahead and let me know so I can buy it. There's There's no small talk with Boaz. And in hearing this, it would seem like this is just an opportunity for a man to sort of increase his real estate portfolio. Maybe this could be like a passive form of income for him. But redeeming land in Israel was much more than that. The land was a gift to God's people, and God parceled it out to each of the families in Israel. They had to live on it, and they had to utilize it according to God's laws. To honor God, Elimelech's land had to be purchased by a family member. It was a sacred duty, because ultimately you were handling God's land. So Mr. So-and-so, well, he agrees to this. He knew it was his duty to honor God and to honor the family. It's settled. Not to mention, he's going to make additional money because he will cultivate more crops that way. But then, in just a quick moment, we discover what this transaction is really about for this man The motives of his heart are exposed in broad daylight. Boaz continues the offer. By the way, on the day that you buy this land from Naomi, 
you also have to marry Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead. And the land uh, that, that, that will come and when you have children, well, that will go to the children that you and, and Ruth have together, to that son. Now, you have to understand just how loaded this sounded to the man. Boaz is saying, you have to marry someone from a racial group that you do not get along with. That's strike one. And in fact, she's a lower class than you. That's strike two. And then, because of how the law works, if a male child is born from your marriage, this property will be given to him. That's strike three. You see, no matter how you look at it, it isn't logical. And it really does not make a whole lot of business sense. And that's why he says, and with that, I'm out. Look at what he says in verse 6. I cannot redeem it myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. The treasure of his heart is revealed. It's about dollars and cents. Logic prevails over love. And for making that decision, Mr. So-and-so saves his inheritance. He gets his reward. But that is all he gets. God says in, in Isaiah that his people's name is written on his hands, meaning their name will never be forgotten. Their name will never pass from memory. But this man, he'll never be mentioned in the story. His name will never appear in the scriptures. Ruth is a story about the great cost of love, about the loving kindness of God demonstrated through the characters. God is writing a great story of redemption. And this man who fails to redeem, who fails to show kindness, is written out of the story. He may have gotten the better end of that transaction, but he failed the test of love. So he takes off his sandal and gives it to Boaz. His hands are washed of the matter, and we will never hear from him again. There are situations in your life right now that when it comes down to dollars and cents, when it comes to investing your time and resources, logic is saying to you, you should probably walk away. But love would say this, Consider the person. Don't think about the cost. Do you have areas in your life that you wish you were more like that? Do you have a desire to become the kind of person that can love like that? One of the ways in which God grows desires into our hearts and puts them into action is through prayer. And there is a beautiful prayer that brings this holy desire right to the forefront. It comes from Ignatius. He was a 15th century Spanish Christian. Listen to this prayer. Lord, teach me to be generous, 
to serve you as you deserve, to give and not to count the cost, to fight and not to heed the wounds, to toil and not to seek rest, to labor and not to look for any reward, save that of knowing that I do your holy will. What a prayer. What a desire. And that's what we see Boaz embody in what he's about to do. Let's look now at the triumph of love in verses 9 and 10. The man hands the sandal over to Boaz, and the transaction has been made. By the way, when my daughters heard this story, they said, wouldn't it be funny to see a man walk around with one sandal on? Yeah, it would be kind of funny. The stuff kids pick up on. Well, the man's refusal to redeem the property shows something of his character, and that all the more shines light on Boaz's character. He loves Ruth, and he wants to be with her. But maybe you're hearing this, and you're a little skeptical about the goodness of Boaz. Can he really be that good? In the past few years, and even in the past few months, we've seen the significant downfalls of well-esteemed, well-respected men in the church community. People we thought we knew. People we thought we knew, but who used their power and influence for evil ends, even while serving God. Can Boaz really be this good? Well, you'll remember that this story takes place in the time of the judges. It's the time in Israel's history when corruption and tribalism and destructive use of power, it's all rampant. And the scriptures point out in the open the awful behavior of God's people. As if to say the reason God's plan of redemption is moving forward is not because people are great, but because God is. Some leaders will fail in the most heinous of ways. And others will prove true and faithful, but none of them will be perfect. If Boaz were not of good character, we would know, especially in the time of the judges. But look at what we have. Boaz makes the proclamation heard all over the town. I have bought from Naomi all the property that belonged to Elimelech, Chilion, and Malon, and have married Ruth, the Moabite, the widow. The name of the dead lives on. Love has triumphed. But this is not the resolution of a romantic tale. The story of Ruth does have romance in it, but it isn't a romantic novel. It's a redemptive story. The union between Boaz and Ruth is just the tip of the iceberg. And Boaz's proclamation makes that very clear. You see, as we go deeper into the story of Ruth, as we've gotten deeper into the story of Ruth these past few weeks, we focused on the relationship between Naomi and Ruth, and then Ruth and Boaz, that we may have forgotten the names that started this story. But God never did. Elimelech, Chilion, and Malon faded into the background, but they never lost sight in God's eyes. God's love reunites this entire family together, both the living and the dead. 
And if you remember back in chapter 1, Naomi and Ruth were in such a devastating situation that as they're walking back into Bethlehem, you, you wouldn't want to look at them out of pity, but you might have stared and shook your head if you, if you did. The townspeople were stirred up and Naomi pushes them away. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Naomi said she had nothing. Yet Ruth was standing right there. Ruth was nameless. And out in broad daylight is all the shame and sadness and loss. But look here. The townspeople who were stirred now become witnesses to Ruth and Naomi's redemption. Their public shame becomes public redemption. And look at the extent that God redeems. He doesn't just redeem the living, he redeems and honors the dead. Look at the company of names surrounding Ruth in verses 9 and 10. Boaz, Naomi, Elimelech, Malon, Chilion, the elders and the townspeople. Never has a widow's life ever been so full. But this triumph of love is even more amazing than that. This redemption isn't just an event for Ruth and Naomi and their family with some spectators. Now, Boaz's proclamation gives us a picture of what God's kingdom looks like in Jesus Christ. And we heard it today in our first scripture reading. Jesus said to his followers, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Boaz, Ruth, Naomi, Elimelech, Malon, Chilion, Jews and Gentiles, descendants from Abraham, and people from the east and from the west, brought together in one act of redemption, witnessed by a watching world. God's redemption is personal but it's also for the greater public. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Tracy shared the insight that Ruth occupied uh, the lowest status in the ancient world. She was a woman, she was a widow, and she was a foreigner. And we saw how Boaz used his status to elevate Ruth. And here we see that God's redemption doesn't just reach down to the lowest, it goes wider and farther than our minds could ever conceive. Jews and Gentiles, living and the dead. God redeems at the city gate for all to hear. God redeems in broad daylight for all to see. What a day this was for Ruth. You know, there are moments in our society where we see God's public display of redemption like this. Back in November 2019, Andrew Stewart from Baltimore was released from prison after being wrongly convicted of murder when he was 16 years old. He spent 36 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. And the day he was released, a rally was thrown in the city to honor him. He said this, I have no words to say. I just want to thank God. And his mother said that day, 
I haven't been able to hug my son in 20 some years. God is good, not sometime, but all the time. What a day this was for Andrew and his mom. And there are people all around us who are in a Ruth-like situation. There will be times when there will be a breakthrough moment of redemption, which we can rejoice over. But there is more to redemption than coming out of a bad past. God's love is a beacon of light moving forward into history. When Ruth got married, that was just the beginning of her redemption. God is never done showing loving kindness. His love endures generation after generation. That's the testament of his love. And the elders and the townspeople, they testify to this. Let's look now at verses 11 and 12. They asked that the Lord would make Ruth like Rachel and Leah, and that Ruth and Boaz's house would be like Perez, who was born from Tamar and Judah. Now, that last blessing that mentions Perez is really unusual. Because, you see, Perez was a son who was born from a scandalous, from an ignoble from an incestuous relationship. His mother, Tamar, was a Gentile, and she was the daughter-in-law of Judah. His dad, Judah, his grandfather was his dad, and his mother arranged that to happen. Just imagine the stigma his life carried. In people's minds, his worth was tied to his ignoble birth. But on the day that Ruth, a Gentile, marries Boaz, his name and his memory is redeemed. No longer will we associate Perez with an ignoble birth, but from his line, the king of Israel will be born. God never forgot his redemption either. And as for asking God to make Ruth like Rachel and Leah, this is two blessings of matriarchs on one person. This is so significant. There is no Israel without Rachel and Leah. Every family, every tribe in Israel can trace their roots back to them. This blessing doesn't just elevate Ruth to Boaz's status. It elevates them both to the highest status in Israel's memory. Israel's future is now tied to the future family of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth could have never anticipated this. In the lives of Naomi and Ruth, we've seen that losses and laments, they are inevitable. And they are unexplainable. We are one year into this pandemic just about. And there will be more inevitable and unexplainable losses of various kinds. But we also learn from this story that 
God's redemption is also unexplainable, and it is inevitable. The redemption that Ruth and Naomi needed was far greater than anything they could ever provide for themselves. And the redemption that you need is greater than anything you could ever muster up to do. Pick an area of your life, and within seconds, you can name the myriad of limitations you have to improve that situation. The riptide of sin, our own and others, our personal sin, our corporate sin, sweeps us all under, and no one can escape it. And just like Ruth, just like Naomi, just like Boaz, we need a God who can bring us out to do more for us than we could ever do for ourselves. Outside the city gate, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died on a cross. And the shame that fell on Naomi, and the shame that fell on Ruth, and the shame that falls on the Naomi's and Ruth's in our day, your shame... He made it his own. Even suffering for our sinful actions, he did that too. He redeems everything in us. On the cross, he says to us, there is no trial I will not undergo for you. And three days later, Jesus Christ rose victorious from the grave. In broad daylight, our redemption appeared. You know, the story of humanity looks like it would fall prey to death, just like Naomi and Ruth. But God's love in Jesus Christ has triumphed. He has redeemed what looks lost forever. And the very best is yet to come. In just a few moments, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this table is a testament of God's love shown for you in Jesus Christ. God's redemption is for you. Just as real and just as tangible as this meal is. When Jesus talked about many people reclining at table with Abraham and from east and from west, he had you in mind. He has a seat for you at the table. The Lord's Supper reminds us of Christ's redemption on the cross, but it is also a foretaste of that great feast where everyone in history that Jesus Christ has called to himself will celebrate God's great love forever one day. God never forgets to redeem. He hasn't forgotten to redeem you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us your whole self to redeem us, everything within us, that we would be made your children and that no shame or sin that we carry around is no longer ours, but yours. 
And by faith, we live in newness of life here and now, even as we wait our full redemption. Would you work these things in our hearts, we pray. Amen.